You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Thank you very much, everybody, for coming. Sorry, we're starting a tiny bit um, uh, late. Um, so we're here to discuss today um, um, the future and the financing of the Belt and Road uh, in Africa. Um, everybody has heard about the Belt and Road now. Um, not everybody, I think, um, knows exactly what it is. Um, um, but we have a, um, a, a wonderful panel um, to discuss um, the implications um, of what um, has been called a, a, a $10 trillion package. Is that $10 trillion? <laughs> um, I'm the, uh, my name is David Pilling. I'm the uh, Africa editor of the Financial Times. Um, I was in Asia for 14 years, actually based in Hong Kong for a lot, lot, lot of that time, um, and so became quite familiar with China. So I've, I, I, for what it's worth, I've sort of seen this from both both sides, and I think as have many of our um, um, panelists. Um, the room's packed. Uh, I think there's another 200 people um, watching online. Um, for anybody who wants to tweet about this, if the urge strikes you, um, it's hashtag China Africa. I think we were up all night thinking about that one. <laughs> um, so um, I'll introduce the panelists probably uh, I think one by one as we um, uh, you know as I sort of call them call them up. Um, I just wanted to make a few um, sort of very basic opening remarks um, m myself. Um, first of all, the Belt and Road I think is very much a kind of a catch catch-all phrase. Um, I remember talking to some uh, Chinese officials, this was maybe about a decade ago now, or just about when Belt and Road was being launched, and they were, they, they were going to present something about Chinese investment in, um, uh, in the Philippines, I think. And uh, they had to change all the slides at the last minute and put Belt and Road on the top. Um, because basically, you know, Belt and Road became this, this, this way of forming a strategy around what was, what was and has been happening um, um, for, for many, many years, which started out, I suppose, as early as, I mean, you, you could trace it back a long, long way, but, but you could trace it back to around 2000 when China became a net importer um, uh, of oil, when um, it became very, very hungry for um, uh, all sorts of um, resources. Um, and when it became much more ambitious um, as well, and um, instead of all roads leading to Washington or London or Paris, um, there was an ambitious, uh, ambition, I think, for at least some roads um, to lead um, to Beijing. Um, again, I think dif different panels will have different views. Um, it's important to realize that, you know, as well organized as China is and can seem, um, it's not monolithic, um, and there isn't as much as people think, I think, a kind of a China Inc. There's no guy in a room somewhere devising um, uh, China-Africa policy. Although I personally do think that China has kind of seen China, whatever China is, um, you know, the Chinese leadership, has seen in Africa a sort of a diplomatic and economic and a commercial opportunity that, to some extent, the rest of the world had been ignoring. Um, and I think that, that that's why we've seen China, Chinese companies, official China, private China, Chinese citizens moving into what had been not exactly a vacuum, but certainly a kind of a, a space. Um, 
I and I probably again in line I guess with some of the panelists you know I've always um, thought of the Chinese influence in Africa as um, net positive um, now it doesn't mean that everything that China Chinese companies do um, in you know each of 54 countries is always good how could it possibly be um, but um, uh, you know the idea and we've heard a, a lot of the rhetoric coming out of Washington um, uh, in recent um, years and even in recent months. You know, this idea that China is this kind of bogeyman trying to capture Africa, trying to ensnare it in debt, um, um, trying to suck out all its resources, near, you know, a kind of a neo-colonialist project, um, you know, I think is, is, is hugely overdone. Um, like a lot of these things, there may be, there may be elements of truth um, um, in what's said. Um, but I think that in giving African governments uh, a choice, giving them access to finance, giving them access to uh, infrastructure, which had not really been built in the years before China came in in a big way, has, as I say again, been, in my opinion anyway, a, a net positive. The final point I'd like to make is that we, we tend to talk, and I've just done it myself, which is why I want to redress it, we tend to talk about um, Africa in terms of, first of all, we need to be very careful if we talk about Africa, because of course we're talking about um, 54 different countries. But we tend to talk about um, it as a continent to which things are done. Um, the scramble for Africa, the new scramble for Africa, what does China want in Africa, what does the US want, etc. Um, that is the wrong way of looking at things very often. Um, and we need to um, remember that um, um, that African countries, African governments, African civil society, businesses have agency here. Um, uh, and personally, I think the, the, the next stage, in a sense, is for governments to use that agency more creatively um, um, and to become more strategic about their dealings, not only with China, but with um, and many other countries who have followed China, um, the Turkeys and the Indias and the Brazils and the um, Gulf states of this world. Um, um, and ensure that um, um, their dealings with the rest of the world are um, are positive um, for the citizenry of the countries um, and not the leadership of the countries. Um, anyway, I think that's um, definitely enough from me. Um, I would like to start um, uh, with Dr. Um, Yoon Jung Park, who I'm delighted um, uh, is here. I'm just going to check her biography just to make sure I don't get anything wrong. Um, um, she's a renowned scholar um, in this growing field of China-African studies. Um, she's the author um, of A Matter of Honor, Being Chinese in South Africa. Um, her research um, has um, focused on ethnic Chinese in Southern Africa and perceptions of Chinese people by local communities. Um, she looks at this from um, the, the perspective of a sociologist, but today, <laughs> just for us, um, she's going to put on her financial hat. Um, uh, she's going to talk um, about um, lending practices um, from ch Chinese stakeholders, specifically um, uh, with regard to the Belt and Road Project. Thanks, David. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm a replacement um, for uh, Professor Deborah Bradigam, who sends her apologies. She couldn't be here. She is one of the um, most renowned researchers of Chinese lending to Africa. And I'm going to speak um, 
based on her research, but also the uh, research of the China Africa Research Initiative, where um, I've been based for the last year. Um, the China Africa Research Initiative collects um, data on Chinese loans to Africa, and I'll be speaking to that. Um, so let me go ahead and start. Guinea was actually China's first African borrower in 1960. Beijing offered Guinea a $25 million line of credit, interest-free. This finance was used to construct a cigarette and match factory, a tea plantation and factory, a conference center, and a small hydroelectric station. Nearly 60 years have passed between that first China, uh, loan from China to Africa, but it's only recently, in the last several years, that Chinese lending has received so much public attention. Chinese lending has been funding Africa's infrastructure projects long before the Belt and Road Initiative existed. And this is one of my first points, revisited a few times. In addition to Guinea's hydropower plants um, and the well-known Tanzania-Zambia Railway, which was completed in 1976, China funded hydropower plants in the Congo in 1980 and Sierra Leone in 1986, water supply projects in Mauritania in 87, and the Republic of Congo in 1990, roads in Ethiopia, the Luapula Bridge in Zambia, and many, many more. The connection between the announcement of the Belt and Road Initiative in 2013, um, since then, 37 African countries have signed the BRI um, Memorandum of Understanding. 28 of these were signed during the 2018 Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Gathering. The connection between African Belt and Road signatories and Chinese loans to these countries based on our research is actually quite weak. In other words, there's not a lot of evidence of a causal connection between the Belt and Road Initiative and Chinese lending to Africa. When Angola is excluded, lending totals, while high, have been pretty constant um, since the Belt and Road uh, initiatives unveiling. In other words, the, the announcement of BRI has not had a positive impact on Chinese lending for African transport infrastructure development. Um, and surprisingly, the lending for transport infrastructure actually dropped in the period between 2014 and 2015. Um, in 2014, Kenya signed two loans for the standard gauge railroad for a total of 3.6 billion US. Um, so that, that is kind of one of the biggest chunks of Af Chinese lending to Africa um, uh, that, that kind of falls under BRI. Um, South Africa and Egypt were two of the earliest BRI signatories, um, and lending has increased to these countries since 2013. But is that BRI? We're not sure. Again, it's the, the, the question of making these causal linkages um, that the media tends to do quite frequently. Um, everyone seems to point to Djibouti in particular as a BRI country. Um, in fact, they didn't formally sign the BRI MOU um, or anything until the FOCAC 2018. Um, so just a note there to, to remember. Um, This was probably going to come up in the question, so I thought I'd go ahead and nip it in the bud. <laughs> the primary concern of late around China's lending to Africa and Chinese lending globally has been around debt traps, um, or what has been called um, debt trap diplomacy. 
um, and Africa's debt sustainabilities. Um, what Deborah Brattigam wrote in her New York Times opinion piece was um, the following. Yes, debt is on the rise in the developing world, and Chinese overseas lending is, for the first time, a part of that story. But there is scant evidence of a pattern of Chinese banks deliberately over-lending or funding loss-making projects to secure strategic advantages for China. Um, in response to all of these headlines about debt trap diplomacy, um, CARI, the China-Africa Research Initiative, created debt profiles for the 17 low-income African countries that are already in or at risk of debt distress. Um, the, our findings uh, fell into three categories. So the first group of eight countries, which included Burundi, Cape Verde, the Central African Republic, Chad, the Gambia, Mauritania, San Tome Principe, and South Sudan. In these eight countries, Chinese loans were a relatively small share of debt. The major factor for debt distress in these countries was either conflict-related economic collapse, commodity price collapse, or some other economic management factor internal to that country. The second group of countries that included Cameroon, Ethiopia, Ghana, Mozambique, Sudan, and Zambia. China was a more significant creditor, but each of those countries had also borrowed significantly from other sources. In those countries, Chinese loans ranged from 25 to 50% of debt. Only in three countries, Djibouti, the Republic of Congo, and Zambia, did we find that China is, quote-unquote, responsible for debt sustainability issues in those countries. Is China deliberately trying to entrap Africa in debt to get their natural resources? The answer um, is that China learned themselves from uh, receiving loans um, from Japan back in the day and benefited from them. So it might be intuitive for China to use the same strategy um, for infrastructure projects, um, even though this might not be best suited for Africa. Are Chinese loans usurious? In other words, are they lending at super high rates? Um, Chinese concessional loans are actually cheaper than market rate loans but actually not as nice as those from the World Bank or the IMF. The issue here is that um, the World Bank and IMF's loan sizes and loan purposes simply don't match the needs of many African projects, specifically for large infrastructure <coughs> projects. Um, IMF and World Bank may have really low interest rates um, for their loans, but the loan sizes are usually much smaller and, again, don't fund large infrastructure projects. I have a couple minutes? Or am I? Um, yeah, no, I mean, I'm also going to ask a couple of questions which will kind of play off what you're saying, but yeah, absolutely. Um, I just wanted to touch briefly on debt relief and debt cancellation because um, this is an area that the um, China-Africa Research Initiative has just started to work on. Um, it's still preliminary, but um, at the start of the debt crisis, China was the first responded by providing debt relief um, by rescheduling payment terms. Um, for example, um, going back to the Tanzania-Zambia railway, payments were postponed for 10 years because when, after the first loan was given, um, the debt crisis, the, the first one, began. Um, and China very kindly just suspended those payments for 10 years. Um, by the end of 2012, Chinese had announced that they had canceled African overdue zero-interest loan debt 
worth approximately $3.27 billion. Um, more recently, in the wake of the Belt and Road Initiative Forum, which was held in Beijing this spring, Ethiopia received another cancellation on all of its interest-free loans up to the end of 2018. And this was on top of already earlier renegotiated extensions. Um, one of our uh, researchers, uh, Yunnan Chen, has argued that these sorts of concessions highlight both the continuing debt struggles that governments have taken on in large infrastructure projects, but they also highlight the advantages and flexibility of Chinese loans. So a couple of follow-up questions. So one is, um, if you look at, say, the International Monetary Fund in the 80s and 90s, um, with, um, when they were um, lending um, uh, to Africa, then there was a default. And then there was, um, you know, the IMF moved in with its structural adjustment programs and forced all sorts of policy changes throughout the continent. If you'd have sat down and asked anybody at the IMF, is this a deliberate policy to force Africa? They would have said no. Um, so my question is, does it matter? Does it matter whether China thinks it's engaging in um, debt trap diplomacy if, you know, Djibouti and Angola and Zambia are borrowing too much and they're going to get into trouble? Isn't that the point? I, again, I think part of this has to do with Chinese own experience with development and um, I think with current African government's um, priorities um, in, in infrastructure development. Um, and again, if I kind of turn it back around to one of the things that you said, um, some of these questions are asked in a way that assume that African governments aren't making these decisions on their own, as if China is forcing these, these loans down their throats. And I think that's an un, um, unhelpful an unfair way to characterize the situation, but unfortunately in most of the West, and um, I'm based in Washington, D.C. right now, that has been the tone and the tenor of, of the conversations, that it's um, that China is doing something to Africa, um, and I'm sure Ambassador will speak to this um, just now, but African governments, African leaders are making these decisions, and, it's, and, the, and the infrastructure projects um, and the debt that they're taking on are things that they want, that they realize they need in order to reach that next level of development. Right. And then second, very quickly, um, given that you were saying that there's such, such little correlation between Belt and Road initiatives and the money that actually flows, I mean, is it useful at all to, talk, to think about, or to even to talk about the Belt and Road initiative when it comes to Africa? Why don't we just talk about Chinese projects in Africa? No, frankly, as an academic, I find it <laughs> in, um, incredibly unhelpful yeah. to talk about the Belt and Road in right. Initiative. So it's it's a year. huge <laughs> umbrella, a basket. I've been heard. I've heard it um, called. Um, it's 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 a convenient kind of overall strategy for China to use. Okay. Um, and you know, it 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 wasn't called the BRI initially. It was One Belt One Road. And so if you read some of the literature from several years back, they all refer to Obor. Yep. But this is just the latest sure. naming of, of you know, things that are happening, right? There is Chinese lending um, in for infrastructure. You're right. My story was about Obor, not about Brie. Yeah, indeed. Um, let's turn to the um, um, ambassador from um, Ethiopia, 
Faseha Shawel Gebre. I hope I pronounced that roughly, roughly yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so the ambassador is fairly new to, to London, right. um, joined the Ethiopian Ministry of Foreign Affairs in 1990s, career diplomat, served in various diplomatic missions, South Sudan, Kenya, Somalia, Egypt, um, vast experience uh, in between. His Excellency was assigned uh, various posts within the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, including his Deputy Chief of Cabinet, Chief Advisor um, on the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, um, and the Deputy Head of the Somalia Office. So vast experience there. Thank you. How does this look to you? So marvelous. Uh, <laughs> it enabled me now in front of you to talk. <laughs> how, does, um, how does the whole question of the China Belt and Road, of China's involvement, and in Africa appear from the perspective of Ethiopia. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, Ethiopia, as you know, I mean, the Horn of Africa uh, is now over 100 million plus people. And already before our strong relationship uh, uh, with China, uh, my government, since the 1990s, was very clear that unless we democratize, unless we push economic development, and unless we bring peace and stability with the increasing population pressure, that we had no future. That was very clear. So before China coming into the scene, we were trying hard first to develop infrastructure and then to build manufacturing industries in, in, in Ethiopia. Then this was especially has got intensive, uh, I mean, got the necessary focus and intensive drive and hard work uh, came since 2005, 2006. And then when uh, Belt and Road uh, came in BRI, uh, around 2013-2014, what we in Ethiopia did was to reposition our economic outlook uh, prospects with China. Otherwise, it was a process going on already, and it came, uh, it required us just to complement with what China has come. This uh, Belt and Road Initiative, as you know, uh, focuses mainly in uh, Horn of Africa up to uh, Cairo at the moment, including Kenya. And uh, in this uh, Ethiopia, when I say we were repositioning ourselves, so we try to align our activities with expanding telecom activities, expanding rail and road highways, expanding our Ethiopian Airlines reach out, uh, connecting 48 African cities with uh, the outside world, and now currently flying more than 35 flights a week to China in five major uh, provinces that are the key states for the Belt and Road Initiative. And uh, along this side, this line, what we did was our maritime uh, agency was trying to expand again with Chinese assistance, which we own uh, more than 10 ships built by China, and now accessing Chinese ports, uh, more than 48. 
So you can see how it is linked uh, with, with this initiative of China. Uh, overall, in Africa, the Chinese gesture was overwhelmingly welcomed. I attended the 2015 uh, summit of FOCAC in South Africa, and uh, previously, uh, China-Africa cooperation we hosted in Addis Ababa. And the leadership, both in Ethiopia and uh, uh, the rest of Africa, we welcomed it. Though it is focused in East Africa and North Africa, but there are other uh, activities alongside this in the continent. One is that we have recently made operational the African Economic uh, Trade Zone, Free Trade Zone, uh, and also Africa's, uh, through African Union, our 2063 uh, initiative. And in all this, uh, Africa, what suffered most was lack of infrastructure. We could not do business between ourselves, we could not trade, and we could not trade with other countries because of this uh, problem. So the involvement of China uh, with Ethiopia and the rest of Africa focused on infrastructure and the building industrial bases, while the West is active on the mining sector. So it is basically complementary. If we see now Ethiopian economy, well connected with UK, Europe, and America, but the basis of uh, the economy moving to the uh, manufacturing sector and also infrastructure and uh, banking sector, well connected with uh, other continents. So uh, we feel in Africa that uh, the initiative of China Yes, it can be argued in whichever way, uh, whether it is helpful or it has got its own back draws, but we welcomed it simply because the base of cooperation, I can speak certainly for Ethiopia, the offer is a willing buyer, a willing seller. We wish to do it, and China is willing to do it. So it is up to us to reposition ourselves how to maximize on this offer. And we feel in Ethiopia that, for example, uh, we are planning to be manufacturing base in Africa, which we built the last one decade, about 13 industrial parks, which are all of them full now. There is no space. And who is occupying this with the Chinese support, these uh, industrial parks? Koreans, Indians, UK, Turkish, and the Gulf. So we are seeing that what China is doing is also attractive to others. So it is interconnecting us. So it is really complementary. And this is what we are doing. But as the title indicates, it has got its own uh, uh, problems. One is we in, the, in Africa, including my country, we have to work more on corruption. Uh, Chinese projects must be made public and the private investigation and the follow-up and transparency. That is our part that we have to do. Second is security within the continent. If you see my region, Horn of Africa, we have Somalia struggling to come out from long uh, failure. South Sudan uh, with such a problem. Uh, Eritrea coming out uh, in peace with Ethiopia and uh, to become at peace with itself. And Sudan in transition. And Kenya, Uganda, every time they have election, there is always issues that we 
in Africa are suffering from this chronic security problem that we have to improve on this. This is one element uh, that would be a problem to maximize the benefits from China. The other one is views of China and the West are not complementary. What we are hearing always is what China is doing is always contradicted by the West and which uh, is not, is not uh, appropriate, that we have to agree that it is helpful. Other, the other one is lack of existing infrastructure within the continent itself for trade and investment. We have to do more, like road, railway, telecom, energy, power grids. Uh, we have to interconnect uh, ourselves. And uh, there is a huge deficit at balance of trade with China that we know. That we have to have a mechanism to narrow it a little bit. Otherwise, uh, net beneficiary and net ruler uh, wouldn't help into a win-win situation. That is another area that we need to work. And uh, very high cost of trade within Africa itself. And as the saying goes, if you do business in Europe or America or Asia, it is just 100% more expensive to do business in Africa. Then that we have to do something on that also. And BRI itself and the Chinese initiative itself is in constant move. It is under constant evolution. It is being adjusted so that we continue. Ethiopia would be at the center of China's approach to Africa. Uh, but others are also looking into how to fit in. So we appreciate the Chinese side would be more clearer, more firm, and more uh, clear roadmap uh, ahead of us. Otherwise, the opportunity is welcomed by successive governments and my leadership, and we are very happy on where we are now. Thank, thank you. Thank you. That was a fascinating um, roundup, I think, of your interactions with, with, with China. Two quick um, follow-ups. You mentioned the phrase willing buyer, willing seller. Yes. Um, are you pleased that you bought the Djibouti um, to Addis um, Railway? I mean, one hears of teething problems, power shortages, underutilization. Is, 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 that, is that working? And, and what have you learned from that, that particular project? Yeah, it has got a little ups and downs, but the improvement is impressive. Uh, from Djibouti through the eastern city of Dredawa to Djibouti uh, from Addis Ababa, we used to take three days or four days for a cargo to reach the port. Uh, our outlet is Djibouti port to the sea. And it used to take us four days, three days. Now, with the Chinese electric uh, rail from Addis Ababa to Djibouti, less than 12 hours, we are at the port. Uh, but electricity shortage has nothing to do with China. It right. is Ethiopia's problem uh -huh. that we have to improve. And for this, we have uh, the Great Renaissance Dam, which is on the Nile, that would produce 6,000 megawatts per year which is enough to half of Africa, which we are planning to export to Djibouti, Sudan, Kenya, and the rest of South Sudan, so that we can provide electricity connectivity to the whole of Africa and the greater Eastern Africa. Otherwise, China was aware of this need of electrification that they have done in the north with Takaze Dam. They have financed it, and it's already operational. And Gilgal Gibe at the border with Kenya, we are also completing the third round, the third uh, the tertiary program. So uh, with the completion of other uh, hydro uh, power projects, uh, we will soon overcome uh, electricity shortage. 
not because we do it for the railway, but for the entire people of Ethiopia, that we need electrification for everything. It is the basis. That's how, why we are just uh, doing much. And by next year, I hope we will not be talking about shortage of electricity. Right. That's where we are. Um, second question. Um, since Abiy Ahmed has come into mm. power, there's um, a lot of discussion about liberalizing the economy. You know, right. what it had been under, under Mela Sanawi, a kind of a, a command economy, you know, right. deliberately sort of copying some of the models that we'd seen in, in, in successful models that we'd seen in Asia. Yeah. Um, we're now tweaking that model. Will you, as a result, be recalibrating, do you think, your relationship with China? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, some try to read too much uh, into Dr. Abi's uh, reform programs on the economy. But uh, we are liberalizing both the politics and the economy of uh -huh. Ethiopia. Uh, it is uh, in this century and at this time, it is not plausible to continue with large state-held uh, corporations and uh, simply because we cannot be competitive. So uh, it is selective liberalization that we are doing open to everybody, including UK businesses are competing, and China is also competing uh, alongside with other uh, partners. Uh, so liberalizing the economy is a must in Ethiopia. Okay. Otherwise, we cannot continue this way, and it will be uh, done, the procurement and the, the bidding services uh, procedures are according to international practices, and it's being done openly. So uh, that's, that's a must we have to do. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was very, very interesting. Um, next speaker is um, Ginny Yan. Um, Ginny joined the ICBC Standard Bank as chief China economist in 2016 and leads the China market strategy and the research team. Um, her focus is to deliver China um, macroeconomic and market insights um, to internal and external sta stakeholders. And today we are those external stakeholders, I guess. Um, so we're lucky enough to... Uh, to um, get the benefit of her expertise. Thank you very much, David. First of all, I'm delighted to be here. Um, and uh, given that the topic is China-Africa and uh, we're ICBC standards, so ICBC, Chinese Bank, um, uh, and Sana Bank, obviously one of the biggest African banks, um, I think the topic is very interesting. Regardless of what the, the title is, whether it's Belt and Road or not, is completely irrelevant because as long as there's a China angle, it is Belt and Road with that regard. And I am very um, delighted to hear some of the remarks already made by the two previous speakers. In particular, I think um, two points. Number one, about connectivity. Belt and Road, for me, is all about connectivity. Um, so we conducted some research on Belt and Road, looking at it from a very much of macroeconomic angle. Um, we, we like to remove the politics away from <laughs> Belt and Road because from for us, it's really about economic growth, how to boost global economic growth through infrastructure investment. But that was the original version, infrastructure very much being the, you know, the dominant part of it. But I will go on to talk about how that future angle is coming in. What is the future development for Belt and Road? So 
Economic growth comes from not only trade connectivity, but also investment. And third, and most people really do not pay too much attention on the people angle as well, the people connectivity. And for me, whether you're looking at Africa, whether you're looking at Central Asia, and in fact, Belt and Road started in Central Asia. I think Central Asia as a region is the only area where per capita investment in infrastructure is even lower than the continent of Africa, um, I believe. Um, so Kazakhstan's where it rolled out, and obviously the reason why Belt and Road put a lot of well over 140 now Belt and Road, um, uh, you know, signatories. I guess um, not only countries but also international organisations as well. The reason why there's a commonality between all of these countries is that they are in need of infrastructure, not only infrastructure but a, a you know a, some sort of momentum for further growth, future growth, other you know diversification of sectors. Um, so coming back to Africa, I just wanted to touch on maybe three things. What is Belt and Road? I already touched on. Actually, no one has that answer because as we've also touched on, it's constantly evolving. Whoever has an answer to what is Belt and Road obviously comes from a very specific angle. If you're a person in development, you would be talking about capacity building. If you're in banking, you'd be talking about the bankability of uh, Belt and Road projects. So completely depending on what your intention is when you're trying to understand Belt and Road. <coughs> And then um, how? So I talked about, you know, Belt and Road trade investment people. Why people is important. So we all understand that most of the trade connectivity is bringing economic growth. Investment also, we've talked about these, whether it's outward, uh, uh, outbound uh, um, in, uh, direct investment. And in fact, outbound investment from China has really come down in recent years. Um, and uh, if you put together, added together all the, the, the sort of data from 2013 to 2017, which is the latest official data from Mofcom, um, you'll come to something like 17 billion and that's absolutely nothing we as part of our research we counted roughly 120 billion worth of projects that not only China has uh, really committed to but also is um, you know including things like M&A mergers and acquisitions equity investment and, and things like that and people don't tend to uh, have a concept of uh, overall data for that but that said that 120 billion could be projects over a tenor of say 10 years 20 years down the line so you can't account for it in one year's data and that's why it's so difficult to really account for how much projects already out there on Belton Road. Um, and then coming to people, tourism, not just tourism, all of the education programs set up um, by China, but together with other countries, um, research programs that's now related to Belt and Road. You know, I know here we're sitting, um, you know, talking about it. The f very fact that uh, m much research is, has been activated to understand what is uh, necessary to, to, to really to gauge that is, is very interesting. And that's all part of connectivity is what the ambassador talked about. Now, how has it shifted? Um, many people would probably mark uh, this 
this April, so Belt and Road, the second Belt and Road Forum in Beijing is kind of Belt and Road 2.0. I would argue there's been many, many versions of Belt and Road simply because um, China likes to learn from previous mistakes and China um, does cross the river by groping the stones because China can really do things by its own experience. And much of Belt and Road um, financing has really been based on China's investment in Africa, in fact, as Dr. Park said. It's one of the uh, first uh, loans, etc., were in Africa. But in many of the different jurisdictions that we're operating on, you can't treat it like Africa because simply you've also got developed markets now, Italy being one of them. You know, even um, uh, many countries across Europe are part of the Belt and Road itself. So um, learning um, the process of how to adapt to different jurisdictions, actually operating with multiple jurisdictions, because some, some, some of these infrastructure projects not only are in two countries, multiple countries, from a legal perspective, risk management perspective, how do you deal with that? That's when the kind of... Uh, uh, third-party um, consultants, etc., come in to help. Now, in terms of sectors, um, as part of our research, um, we definitely counted, uh, you know, a lot of projects relating mostly to transport, utilities, construction, and in fact, in Africa, most of those projects are in construction. And um, that's now shifting. If you look at the most recent projects that are being struck uh, between China and, and uh, particularly African economies. These are now in sectors such as renewable energy, in uh, sectors such as, uh, well, the digital Silk Road, I would call it. Um, and this is something that also is very difficult to account for. The project sizes sometimes are tiny. And the, the, the way that it's being financed, less and less dominant uh, and uh, really dependency on loans, bank loans, more and more about equity investment. Chinese companies taking an equity stake, not even a majority equity stake, but probably a minority equity stake. But still, this is helping to build infrastructure, the digital infrastructure, and that much needed digital infrastructure. Other sectors, consumer goods, healthcare, and the reason why China, um, uh, you know, has really taken on this uh, strategy, I think, is because it's no longer about governments uh, mapping out what sectors they like to invest in. It's less about government to government stri striking a deal, more about Chinese corporates looking for, you know, areas that they would like to expand on globally. So that's why healthcare, consumer goods, these are what Chinese private sector companies want to develop outside of China. And that's another very interesting angle, I think. Um, and then just lastly, I wanted to touch on from our most recent uh, research, three Ds I can summarize in terms of Belt and Road, not just in Africa, but actually in, in all the Belt and Road countries. Deepening, diversifying, and decarbonizing. I think, I think it's very fitting today, as all the demonstrations are going on all over the world. China really, in the future, I think, has a huge amount of work to do, obviously, when they want to really portray this Belt and Road being a, a sort of, a, um, uh, I guess, an initiative rather than a strategy or plan. And the initiative is to make, uh, you know, developing countries to realize that 
if you start to have a strategy at the beginning of starting some of these projects in the right direction. So considering the ESG components, considering SDG, you know, all of these things are something perhaps you could accelerate, you know, your, your development by planning ahead and having at the beginning. And that's why China can help a lot of these countries, I think, because China is very much the, the biggest investor in the green economy, for example. Um, uh, a lot of the projects and, and particularly the research um, that China has with a lot of international organizations very much focus on the green economy and sustainable growth. And then just lastly, I just want to conclude, I know I have gone <laughs> over time. Um, two other things I heard from my two previous speakers, I think the commonality between China and Africa from a macroeconomic perspective, population growth, urbanization, industrialization. These are commonalities that China is going through with the rest of the world, especially Africa. China is now having an aging population, while most of Africa is still having population growth. Now, while supply chain matters more than ever for China, it is absolutely essential for China to get its you know, uh, initiatives right in Africa, to have the right sort of uh, you know, result, because it's all about the people, as I say at the very beginning. Most people have positive attitudes towards China, but if you think about job creation and things that I'm sure we'll touch upon that, the next step will be how to create jobs on the back of these projects. Not only are economies as a whole benefiting, but most importantly, how are local economies benefiting? As time's ticking away, I'm just going to ask you one follow-up question, sure. which is about the um, Continental Free Trade Agreement. I mean, I was reading the other day um, an assertion, really, that China was better at kind of um, joined-up infrastructure and infrastructure that crosses borders. Um, do, do you think that's true, and do you think that... Um, um, that, that somewhere, someone in Beijing is thinking about this, how, how to help um, ACFA get off the ground and become you know, something that's implementable. China can probably draw on its own experience, particularly in Asia, obviously, because obviously China has been working with a lot of ASEAN countries in particular on regional um, free trade agreements. But as uh, China has been, uh, you know, very clear about, you know, in a multi kind of uh, polar world, I guess, multilateral world, what's important is to set certain standards, governance, etc. And it's, I guess, this is why things like um, Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank bank is in place. It's about um, reforming current structures and, and governance, um, but abiding by international standards, of course. So I think, I, I'm not sure whether China really wants to have an influence on this as, as such. But of course, if, um, you know, if, if advice is being sought from Chinese uh, policymakers, of course, it will be given. Um, but at the moment, as, as we know, there are um, many disputes, particularly with Western economies, so I don't know how much advice China could be giving right now. <laughs> Thanks very much. Um, if I can move to our fourth um, speaker, Linda Calabrese. Linda is a development economist and a researcher in the International Economic Development Programme here at the ODI. Um, her research interests include trade, uh, regional integration, something I was just talking about, private sector investment, industrial policy, economic transformation, as well as China-Africa development issues. The floor is yours. Thank you very much. Thanks, David. Um, so, as here at ODI, 
we work a lot on research into policy and my sort of main interest really is how can African countries benefit from the Belt and Road Initiative. This is what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to raise three main points, three main areas in which I think the engagement could be improved. So the first point talks about the country's ability to plan for strategic infrastructure, infrastructure that they need that it's critical to their own development. And I'm going to do that with an example of one case where this has not happened, um, from one country that I know very well and that I work on a lot, which is Uganda. So Uganda is a country that is sort of small on the China radar, doesn't receive a lot of uh, loans or a lot of investment, but still China is a presence. Uh, China is funding a number of hydropower stations to improve Uganda's power generation capacity, um, a number of industrial zones and agricultural zones to, uh, to also promote production capacity and so on. So this is sort of like in line with China's general infrastructure policy in Africa, which is about building in, uh, in China's investment policy in Africa, which is about building infrastructure, which is about promoting industrialization. But if one thinks about what is China, what is the Chinese government, what, are, what is Chinese finance doing in Uganda, the main project that comes to mind is really the expressway that connects the capital city of Kampala to the airport in Entebbe. Now, this is a project that has been put in place to reduce the transit time that takes to go from the city to the airport. It comes with a price tag of 400 million US dollars. Um, this was a loan that was taken from China Exim Bank. But unfortunately, what is not clear is whether this project has any relevance for Uganda's economic development, right? So how does it fit in, uh, in Uganda's own national development strategies? And no matter how many people I've asked and no matter how much I've looked at it and from which angle I've looked at it, really, it, it's not clear. Now, the problem with this is that if a project doesn't support the country's productive capacity, it's that it's very <coughs> difficult to generate enough revenue to then pay the loan back. And the project, the road itself, should be a toll road, but at the moment, uh, fees are not being charged. So even the project itself does not directly generate revenues. So this is not to say that each project needs to raise enough money to repay itself. You can look at it in the broader, sort of, uh, in the broader picture. But still, an infrastructure investment should be linked to productive capacity. Otherwise, it's sort of um, really not relevant. And I think this is a challenge that countries uh, such as Uganda are facing. So my first point really is about this sort of strategic thinking of, infra of leveraging infrastructure for your own development objectives. Which sectors do you want to develop? Which productive capacity do you want to develop? Um, sorry. <laughs> the second point is actually in line with what Ginny was saying about the fact that a lot of these projects are actually regional in nature. So they are not just in one country, even though they are often like we often think about the Uganda project or the Kenya projects, but these are actually very often regional projects by their very own nature. If we are looking at a road, for example, that connects different countries, but also a hydropower station, this has impact on the downstream countries in terms of water flows, right? So there's really a regional discussion that needs to be had. Very often these projects actually change regional dynamics. So if we think about East Africa, for example, again, the famous uh, standard gauge railway that connects the port of Mombasa through the capital city of Kenya and then moving on to Uganda and potentially even farther away. This really has the capacity and the potential to shift equilibrium in the region. 
in the East African region because it's going to be easier to import goods in certain countries, so these goods are going to compete with the goods that are produced in, in these countries. Um, but it's also going to be easier for people to move and to relocate, and so then this may cause agglomeration in certain areas, and it may, cause, it may generate more employment in some areas uh, compared to others. So really there's a lot to unpack and to think about. But the way these projects are conceived at the moment, and negotiated especially, is really bilateral. So the Chinese government negotiates with Kenya, and then with Uganda, and then as the project develops and moves to other countries, the negotiations, the negotiations are also taken to the other countries. But there's very little thinking about how this should be done regionally in terms of financing, in terms of impact, and in terms of um, all the sort of potential consequences of these projects. So this was my second point. My third point is um, sort of a comparative one. So here at ODI we are doing some research on the Belt and Road, especially in Asian countries actually. And as the Belt and Road sort of started as an, uh, the, the earlier phases were an, a sort of Asian connectivity uh, project and, an, uh, and a vision for the Asian, for China's neighborhood in a way. There's a lot more of these projects in the Asian region. So I think African countries and African governments, which are interested in learning how to deal with Belt and Road better, could actually learn a lot of lessons. There's two countries in particular that I know a bit better, so I want to highlight uh, lessons from these countries. First one being Myanmar. So Myanmar is a country that um, has had a rocky start in its sort of relationship with China. But at the moment, um, they are embarking on this project that's called the China-Myanmar Economic Corridor. So the government of Myanmar has set up a steering committee that's very high level. Top government officials sit on the steering committee, and they look at each project as it comes in. So they scrutinize how it fits in their own plans, and they also look at the price tag. And in several instances, they have actually renegotiated the price tag um, if they felt that the project was not, was too big for their own country or was too big that they couldn't afford it. And at the moment, uh, what's happening in Myanmar is that all these big infrastructure projects are screened through a mechanism that's common to everyone. So each country, each project needs to go, needs to be scrutinized through this mechanism, and then a decision is taken on whether this is interesting and this is feasible and it doesn't overlap with other projects or there's no, you know, like areas of, um, um, of conflict with other projects. And it's also possible then to find additional funding that doesn't only come from China, but it's also possible to look for other funders for this project. Um, the second country, which I think is also very interesting, is Cambodia. Uh, because Cambodia has a slightly different approach. They have a very conservative policy in terms of borrowing. So in Cambodia, uh, there's one main government institution that's mandated to um, deal with all the loans uh, that the government receives, and they only accept deals that are very, very concessional. So they only get the best of the best rates. If it's slightly more expensive than what they think it should be, they don't take it on. So they're really very conservative in their approach to, to borrowing. And this has been really helpful um, to them. In, in discussions with them, we found that they feel this is something that other countries could learn from as well. Uh, so these are two very different experiences, but both, I think, offer interesting areas of reflections for countries uh, in Africa that want to make the most of the opportunities offered by the Belt and Road. So just to summarize, three main points for African countries that uh, are thinking about how can they make the most out of the Belt and Road. Think strategically about the projects. 
think about the projects in a regional perspective. And then the third one, see if you, there's something you can learn from other countries that have been there before. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's fascinating stuff there. Because we don't have too much time, I'm just going to, again, limit myself to one sure. um, question, then we'll go to Q&A, so I'll be asking um, questions from the audience. Um, I'm very interested in this question of agency, and you've touched upon that in various ways um, through this. Um, why do you think that, that the elites, and I guess it was the elites in Uganda, decided to build um, a road to the airport? Um, I mean, is that just because they're fed up of being snarled in traffic? Yeah. Um, uh, and does that tell you, um, because it's a question of who has agency. Um, if it's unaccountable leaders um, who have been in power for 30 odd years, um, that's one thing. Um, uh, so who has agency? Um, and how, I, I suppose, in a sense, which governments do you think are thinking strategically in the way that you would advise? Yeah, I think, I mean, to me, the governments that are thinking strategically, and I think this emerged a lot from the presentation from Ambassador, mm -hmm. actually, Ethiopia is probably, in Africa, one of these countries that Absolutely. I would point yes. to. Um, it's really these governments that have a vision of where do we need to be in 10 and 20 years, mm -hmm. and that actually pursue this vision. And to be frank, this has very little to do with China. This has very little to do with Belt and Road. This applies throughout. So if there's a government that has uh, a vision of development for their own country, um, and especially around the most press pressing issues of industrialization in some cases, but also job creation mm -hmm. more in general, so beyond industrialization really. Um, these are the countries that are normally better at leveraging this. But it's really not only with Belt and Road then, it, yep. it's across all yes. sectors. Okay, I'm going to jump straight in. We've got a bit less time for Q&A than we had planned. So um, I'm going to ask you, um, uh, if you have a question, just identify yourself and make the question very brief uh, and to the point, and if possible, direct it to one member of the panel. Um, who would like to go first? Uh, Sora Hans, shoot up there at the back. I th guess this microphone's going to come. Uh, yeah, the guy in blue there. Uh, thank you. Uh, my name's John Gibb, and I'm, I'm retired. I've in development quite a long time. I think, uh, as it's one question, um, I'm not clear at all what the process is that uh, decides uh, what projects, what programs, what sectors will be funded um, by the Belt and Road or, or equivalent. Um, it's not clear to me, okay, it's, it, it's maybe not um, an exact comparison, but generally in, in uh, the World Bank and the IMF, you know, they engage in this sort of endless policy dialogue with a country and this sort of thing. And out of that, there comes some sort of feeling for, for what they should be majoring in and where they've got the comparative advantage and that. But it seems to me all to be a little bit piecemeal and a bit worrying. And I think, just finally, therefore, what, what, where, are, where is ESG on all of this? Because it does seem to be a little bit of an add-on. And of course, I think we're beginning to learn more and more day by day that it's very important. Thank you. Another question. I've got that one. Um, one here. And then... Uh, thank you. My name is Tom Miller. Um, I wrote a book about the Belt and Road, actually, a couple of years ago. Um, I've got a quick comment on what you said about Cambodia, and then a question here. Um, so on Cambodia, you were saying that you know they've done a jolly good job of taking very cheap loans, but of course Cambodia is essentially a client state of China's. Um, so you know I don't know whether you know that might be good for Cambodia, but it might not be. Um, and my question is, um, is there a country in Africa which is close to becoming a Chinese client state? You know, which countries in Africa um, are lacking sort of autonomy when it comes to their relations with China? 
And that was specifically to the ambassador. Well, I think uh, he's, he's a good place too. I mean, I don't know, Djibouti, for example, I don't know. Actually, it was, a, it was a guy in front of you, but you'll, you'll, I'll get to you next time. <laughs> um, hello, good evening. Uh, my name is Chidi Wonu. I'm an uh, army service with the Defense Cultural Specialist Unit. My question um, relates to, I think it's broadly been covered, but I want to be slightly more specific. And that is, we can say um, that you know, China is not trying to lead countries into debt traps, but there is clear evidence you know, from Sri Lanka and Pakistan that China will take over assets that you know, when people default. And if we're looking at, this is purely maybe from an African point of view, so maybe this is directed more at the ambassador. That, that Ethiopia is a good example. There are many bad examples. I can speak from the Nigerian perspective. There's many, many bad examples. So whilst it might not be China's policy, it's clear that this is happening. So what is the strategy if, from your perspective that you know, Africa could adopt? Maybe something like having, like there's EU rules, there could be AU rules. Do you think that's something that Ethiopia would be happy to champion using their experiences? Good questions. So there's a couple for you, Ambassador. So yes. one, is, one is on debt traps. Yes. Um, we have seen this before. We've seen it in Sri Lanka. I forget the other example. What was the Pakistan. other? Pakistan. Oh, Pakistan. Okay. Um, are you wary? No. <laughs> uh, first first of all, uh, if I may, uh, with what my brother said, uh, as to who owns uh, BRI and uh, how this project has okay. come into being, uh, BRI belongs to China. They are the owners, they are the financiers. So they discuss, initiate, and agree with the country, the specific country uh, they would do. Uh, for example, we had uh, the Lapset project, uh, Lamu port from Kenya to South Sudan and Ethiopia transport operation that would eventually link Ethiopia with Djibouti so that the Horn of Africa will be covered by rail and highway. And uh, this, we had it before, and China came with a BRI. Then we uh, started to make it an integral part of the BRI. And in Ethiopia, we had our own uh, projects to link ourselves up with the neighboring countries. And China came in, coming in with BRI, then we realigned it. That's why I said from the beginning, we are repositioning ourselves. So it, it is owned by China, but it has to be done mutually. And uh, Chinese client state in Africa, uh, not as such. Uh, if I t take my uh, country's example, yes, we are benefiting a lot from China, but in the Security Council or United Nations forums or other human rights issues, we are so independent, we not follow China. Whatever they want, if we have, if we have, we have to disagree, we do disagree. So as such, there is no credentials. But there is economics that if you take money, if you are defaulting, that there must be a consequence. So it is we in Africa who are at the receiving end to judicially use what we are getting. If not, other economic measures will apply. And it, it, it depends on the terms and the conditions you agree with. So very simple for me. Uh, debt, yes, it is a bit worrying. Uh, we suffered in Ethiopia ourselves because we took the resources and 100% we didn't um, use them for their intended purposes. And that's our shortcoming and we are learning from it. And we share with other African countries uh, to, to learn from uh, mistakes, but uh, we are adjusting now. That's what I can say.
Okay, client state. Well, did you want to go there? No. Who's the client state? <laughs> Anybody want to take that one on? No one. <laughs> no one? There's no Zambia. client states? We... No, no client states. <laughs> Zambia. Sorry? Zambia. Zambia, okay. Um, <laughs> an answer from the audience, I like it. Um, so I'm going to ask a couple of questions from, um, uh, from our cyber, cyber audience. Um, so question one is from a Dr. Fred uh, Amonia, Lycia, I'm probably pronouncing that completely wrong. So we talk a lot about finance um, in the uh, Belt and Road Initiative. However, the real channel is returns. Um, um, why, why don't we look at returns? Why do we always talk about? That's probably that's one, one for you. Why don't you just... Do you want me to answer that? Yeah. I think it's a really very uh, important point. Uh, most people talk about finance mainly because so much of it, so much has been, you know, dependent on loans, uh -huh. you know. But as I said, it's shifting towards equity. Um, it's, to it's shifting very much. But what is the return being made on these projects? If you ask any Chinese entity, most of it is probably negative returns. <laughs> because first of all, as I talk about, it, you know, depending on what tenor you're looking at, especially now, first part is always most difficult. You're taking on the most amount of risk at the very beginning, especially if it's kind of government to government type of um, projects. Um, and that's why, um, you know, so much of a restructuring going on around now. Lots of uh, loans are being restructured to, to gain the, the most out of, the, you know, the returns and no one really knows in terms of returns you know some of it is not going to be repaid um, for many many years down the line um, even in terms of equities for example the returns won't be coming in, in the first year so a lot of um, you know the considerations around returns is about what do you see in this project in terms of the longer term returns and that's why the multiply effect of the Belt and Road is so important it's not about that particular project itself but what is the economic gain of all of the other projects in the surrounding areas. So this is infrastructure as a public good, partly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So take a port, for example. A port is just a port by itself. How much economic value is delivering well to the direct, the direct beneficiaries of that uh, port? But then you've got the FDI coming in, foreign direct investment coming in, real estate development. You've also got maybe schooling, healthcare, etc. These are the multiplier or the halo effects, some like to call it. Yes. And that is something that is uh, at the moment quite difficult to measure because it's still in its early days. We haven't seen the first phase, you know, into the sixth year really, but haven't seen the kind of multiplier effect really come to fore. So I think that's a really important question and very important to get right for the Chinese authorities because it's something that needs to be um, you know not just about perception but about reality when I think the, the the outside community sees the reality of the benefits of these projects in reality that is when I guess Belt and Road becomes not only a concept but more of a reality a couple uh, quick points I think when we talk about um, Chinese lending to African countries, particularly on construction projects, most of it is tied to construction, Chinese construction firms. And one of the benefits that I see that, that we've talked a lot about in the past is the, um, the Chinese construction companies becoming globally competitive, gaining the international experience that they hadn't had before, and, and kind of um, being able to, uh, to take advantage of, of kind of excess um, uh, skills, labor um, from China, um, and selling that off. The other thing that came up this morning in our workshop about um, 
uh, Chinese, multiple Chinese projects in Africa, um, some of the ones that the China-Africa Research Initiative was involved with um, uh, were specifically around uh, technology transfer, capacity building, knowledge sharing, but um, when we actually interviewed Chinese um, firms in, uh, in uh, different African countries, number one, most of them weren't state-owned enterprises. Mm -hmm. They were run by Chinese migrant entrepreneurs yes. in country, in manufacturing in particular. And what many of them said is in terms of what is driving them in these countries, it had nothing to do with um, Chinese state policies at all. You know, BRI had perhaps um, some sort of signaling effect, but what they were talking about was potential market yes. for their own goods. So I think in terms of the longer term strategies that you're talking about, China's looking at the future, yes. not necessarily next year yes. when the loan's supposed to be repaid. One of the questions on the floor touched on the sort of environment or at least ESG, and we have a question here. I mean, the, to summarize, I mean, it basically says, you know, when these projects are being devised, Belt and Road projects, how much uh, emphasis um, is put on environmental safeguards. I don't know, would you like to have a go at that? Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to say a few words about this, although not necessarily my main area of focus, but in general, my thinking is um, this has been a learning process for a lot of these projects. So maybe at the start, you know, like there, there's a number of projects that have had concerns, like environmental concerns. Uh -huh. um, and as we proceed, we see that there's an improvement. We see, we see that uh, China is issuing a number, the Chinese government has issued a number of guidelines around uh, greening the Belt and Road, uh -huh. and around improving on the environmental standards. So really, like it's it's a learning process on a sort of slightly longer scale that yeah. probably we would like, but, but it's definitely there. Um, and I think, yeah, we can see some a lot of examples okay. of this. I promised the guy at the back that we'd uh, come back to him. <laughs> uh, thank you. My name is Frank Tonchemra. I'm a PhD student at the Open University. So I've got a comment, uh, then a question. Very quick comment. Then my comment is, I think debt is an uh, unavoidable issue, especially at the early stages of development. I would rather be worried about debt that is accumulated for non-productive uses. For example, borrowing to build a palace or a stadium, etc. Uh, that said, then uh, from the Chinese side, do we have some kind of standards or mechanisms to ensure that all those projects that will be funded are bankable and there will be revenues from this project? We've sort of covered that a bit, but etc. What, what what safeguards are there from the Chinese side that these are bankable projects that will, you know, um, produce a, a return from which the debts can be paid back? Well, quite easily, the NDRC, so the state planning agency, basically has to approve every single project that is said to be related to Belt and Road. So there's a very stringent, although it's not released, obviously, to the public, and, that, and that's one of your issues about transparency, of course, we know. But of course, they, you know, Chinese authorities also have their reasons for keeping that. So obviously, it's a, it's a, they do have their own set of criteria. But for, if you think about how much... Um, credit it, within even domestic China, how much uh, credit is being scrutinized now? Because we've talked about, um, you know, debt sustainability in Africa, but even debt sustainability in China itself, the build-up of debt in China, the debt leverage, the deleveraging, that's such a huge problem for China's domestic economy. Do you think China wants to build up external debt? No, absolutely not. This is one of the key safekeepers, I guess, for China not to build up excessive debt. 
and more and more so we're seeing um, you know the scrutiny of every single credit loan that goes out so I think previously has mainly been export loans credit loans etc um, I think probably this year you're going to see that number drop back really quite a lot um, not only Chinese domestic commercial banks but even the policy banks, the policy banks, China Development Bank, Exxon Bank, etc. These are the banks that have really been, um, you know, doing a lot of the debt uh, financing, particularly in Africa. CDB in particular, the CAF, you know, China Africa Fund, for example. But we have um, a, a very close dialogue with all of these policy banks and they are absolutely thinking about, um, you know, now we've got this amount of debt, let's keep the current level and think about how to manage the current risk we're facing. Okay, let's, yeah. let, let, let's stop there. Another question from um, the iPad, and these, this is to the ambassador and to Dr. Yoon. Um, uh, what are your thoughts on China's railway developments in East Africa with regard to improving intra-regional trade? So it's, we're back to the kind of either the East Africa or, the, or, the, or the more broadly the uh, continental free trade. Yeah, uh, as I said, uh, it is it is in line with the regional initiatives before China came with uh, BRI. Uh, it was in 2012 uh, that the leadership of the three countries, Kenya, Ethiopia, and uh, South Sudan, that did in Nairobi, in my presence, uh, initiate the project from Lamu to South Sudan, uh, Ethiopia, through Kenya and Uganda. And this... We were very happy when China came up with the idea of uh, financing this project. And Djibouti, uh, Addis Ababa Road, I mean uh, railway, uh, it was aging uh, more than 100 years, and uh, the gauge is not standard, and it was almost uh, dysfunctional. Then China came with this idea, and uh, we electrified it. Standard gauge was in, put in place. And the Addis Ababa Djibouti uh, railway is the same standard with Mombasa Nairobi project. Right. So when this uh, gets connected, very simply can be done. And China appreciates always two and above plus countries coming together in uh, seeking finance to, to, to the project. So uh, it does go together now. Yeah. We are okay. No. We've got time probably for one more uh, lady here. You're painting a very benign picture of uh, risk around the Belt Road, and particularly political risk. Um, and I might, I, I might want to suggest that the risk is not only about debt sustainability or, or commercial contracts, but also about the soft influence that China is planting uh, across Africa. And I was wondering if someone would like to comment on whether it's all, all absolute marvellous, we've got nothing to worry about, or whether we should be slightly more critical. A bit naive. Um, you know, surely China has an agenda here. Yeah. Linda. I mean, um, <laughs> this is a tricky question. Uh, <laughs> each country, uh, you know, sort of um, lending to other countries or doing foreign aid or whatever, of course, they want to create, you know, friendships and good linkages with other countries. No one does it just out of kindness, really. It's because you want to build your place in the world and you want to sort of build good relationship with other countries that will potentially, you know, be on your side on some issues. I think, yes, this is 
pretty much sort of standard and, and normal. So I don't see anything that China is doing that other countries are not doing. Yeah, Ambassador, this is a good one for you. I mean, you can't just assume that China is in it just for... Uh... Uh, my sister, we are not naive. Uh, China is coming with its agenda because there is no free lunch. And it is up to us to maximize out of it and to negotiate better what we receive. And that's what we are doing in Ethiopia. Whatever comes, if it is not in our liking, we have the audacity to say no. And we make it, uh, and every government is acting like that? I'm not sure. All right? So you said that China has its agenda. Could, of course. Could, could you put that into words? What is its agenda? I mean, globally. Glo I mean, China, look, in three, four decades, it came to be a second economy in the world. All right? It used to tell us, until very recently, they belong to group of 77. Yeah. And we are telling them, you are growing. No, 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 we are not growing. <laughs> we are third world. And then suddenly, the fact has come that they are industrialized, second economy. Yeah. They are competing with the United States to become the first economy in the world. And they have to have the muscle to do it. And that is a, must be the final objective. If I might, I'm, I'm a Chinese government advisor, I would have advised the same way as I'm advising my government to maximize our interest. Yes. So there is a global play, there is economic interest, and uh, security, maritime interest, everything. Then they have to do it. What about votes at the UN? I mean, does, does the check come with, a, with a, an understanding that you vote with? UN? Yeah, China. No, no. UN itself is in trouble. <laughs> it is in trouble. Yes, multilateral, uh, I mean, thanks to... Uh, some of uh, the leaders <laughs> of the bigger countries. So let me not get into, into, into that. But uh, UN is a free club to all of us that belongs to 192 countries, and we play it all there. We are equal in the same. But this thing is bilateral, uh, what we are doing with China, although it is multilateral with specific countries when it comes together, multilateral. But it is based on individual countries with China. I was just going to say, um, I think we can't forget the history of China's um, engagement with Africa. And I think if we go back to the 1950s and 1960s, it was very much about Chinese um, solidarity with um, anti-imperialist kind of movement, right? And I think um, China's recent experience of growth is something that they want to share. So I think it's very difficult for many of us who are based in the West, who are Western, to see things through their eyes. But for the first, what, 20, 30 years of engagement between China and Africa, it was about solidarity. It was about uh, a kind of mutual struggle. China constantly harped on the fact that Zheng He, you know, <coughs> arrived in, in Africa to the shores and, and traded and then left. They never colonized, right? That's very huge in, in terms of the way that China frames its engagement with Africa. And the fact that Chinese laborers, workers, indentured workers were sent to Africa to help build uh, roads and railways and ports is also a very important part of China's narrative um, in terms of how they frame their understanding. And I think even though today we're talking about win-win and mutual benefit and things like that in terms of China's narrative, I think that history plays a continued role in their uh, kind of um, attitude or tone um, with Africa. I think the other thing that you did mention was uh, was the UN, but 
But more broadly speaking, Africa is a continent of 54 countries. It's been said before. I'm going to say it again. 54 countries, That's a, a quarter <laughs> of all of the votes in the UN, but also an entire continent that is ripe, right, and ready to be developed. And that is a market that China is looking at. So if we look toward the future, it's a market. I mean, it that is in their interest. And again, I think in, um, the kind of third point is, you know, as China gets comfortable with its role as a, a global leader, um, second, like almost first economy, um, I think its relationship and how it does things matters. And this learning curve that Linda mentioned, I think, is very much um, a part of the way in which China's been learning by stepping on the stones, right? I mean, this is not a done deal. Everything has been shifting really rapidly. And those of us who've been looking at China-African engagement for the last 15 or 20 years have seen all of these shifts. This is evolving, yeah. Mm. Um, we're meant to be wrapping up, but you, there was an insistent hand shot up here. So, <laughs> um, so very briefly. Uh, due to the uh, limited time, I just have uh, one short comment and one short question. The comment is that, the uh, Belt and Road Initiative, it, it was come up by China, by President Xi. But this initiative belongs to the world. This is the uh, short comment. And I would say another comment, sorry, is that one of the uh, audiences asked the, uh, the describe the uh, participant uh, of the uh, BRO as the uh, client state. I don't believe this is the right word to describe the uh, participants of the uh, Belt and Road Initiative. Take an example. If UK would like to uh, cooperate with China on the uh, climate change issue, uh, for some time later, maybe there will be a deep uh, connected, a deep uh, cooperation between the two countries. Do you think it is the right way to describe UK as a client state of China? I don't believe so. Finally, I have a short question, not only to the uh, panelists, but to all the audience here today. Why criticism on the uh, Belt and Road Initiative are not coming from participants, not coming from African countries, but coming from outside these initiatives? I think everybody here should think about it after this uh, uh, conference. Okay. Well, that's what you call a loaded question in that uh, <laughs> there was an assumption in the, in the question. So I'm going to slightly turn it around. I mean, is that true? Are, are all African countries very happy with um, the way everything's going? Or do some, do some complain? Or is this just whipped up by troublemakers like me in the, in the, in the press? We have about a minute each to go around to answer that, that question. Quick answer, I think Council of Foreign Relations actually did a survey. I think probably about 67%, something like that, respondents in Africa are saying that they're quite uh, positive. Right, that's but it depend, depends <laughs> on whether you're asking government officials or you're, whether you're actually uh -huh. asking the people. So that's the key. If you're asking people on the streets, they're like, well, how's it impact on me? If it's giving me a job, great. If it's not doing that for me, then I don't care really. Okay. <laughs> I, I would agree. I think for most Africans, Belt and Road doesn't affect them. I mean, it, it, it's not a, a, a kind of something that they're going to benefit from or suffer from, one way or another. But, but the policymakers themselves, the officials, I mean, are they largely happy with the way things are going? 
again, if we go back to you know what kind of infrastructure is being funded and, and the, the fact that these loans are being requested from these um, government and, and other elites in, in African countries, then yes, these are projects that they wanted funded. China is helping to fund them. Linda, and I'm going to give the final word to the ambassador. Sure. Um, in the countries where I work, uh, I think, yes, there's some criticism coming from these countries in Africa to the Belt and Road, but overall net positive, I net would positive, say. Yeah. Yeah. Let me say this. Uh, <laughs> African leaders receiving advice from the ministers, one of them asked to his leader, look, if an American ambassador comes to you, a German ambassador comes to you, UK ambassador comes to you, they will advise you how to protect human rights including gay rights. But a Chinese ambassador comes, he will ask you, which road do you want me to build? Which one do you choose? The answer is yours, period. That's as much as this, we are happy. Can I say no one's given the very obvious answer to the question? Uh, you can. <laughs> the biggest answer is that the politicians are getting rich off these deals. Go into any of them, Uganda, the uh, Kenya railways, they make the money coming and going on pre-buying the land before the railroad, uh, uh, consulting fees. Yeah, I mean the ambassador, the ambassador did mention corruption, yeah, and exactly. and Linda mentioned Linda mentioned a road that didn't have an obvious uh, economic return. So, but I think that's a that's that, that, that's a valid point. But that's why China had the issue itself, right? That's why the corruption campaign is absolutely at the heart of current legitimacy of China's political system, is the fight against corruption. And if the Belt and Road could help China to almost portray this, this picture, that corruption is a very fundamental focal point of any developing country, in particular when it comes to infrastructure, then that's probably a success story for China. But at the moment, obviously, there's not enough governance in place. And if you're talking about international governance stepping in to monitor, it's not about how projects are negotiated, struck, whatever. What is the monitoring being done on how to ensure the projects are not just agreed, you know, paid for, but actually are being monitored at every step of the way? Who's doing that? And it's not just Belt and Road, it's global infrastructure. How do you ensure global infrastructure is being risk managed and monitored properly. But in that sense, he's right. I mean, China says we don't interfere, and then you have governments in many African countries um, that are pretty much unaccountable. Um, so, I mean, there, 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 no there is certainly a potential. Deal that they did, no. you know. <laughs> the, blame, the blame goes to us. It is us to be blamed. By the guy on the street. Yes. Yeah. Which is where civil society comes in. But anyway, I think we've just—I mean—not gone off track, but we've uh, um, we've raised a whole other a whole other issue there. But I, I think we we have gone over time, so I'm going to um, uh, thank our audience, thank our cyber audience, and most of all, thank our excellent, lively panel. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Mm -hmm.